Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have just sung what is on our heart. We need to repent. Lord, we know that our Savior taught us that each day we are to pray that our trespasses would be forgiven. Pray then like this, he said. And so, Father, we come before you as we already have today, recognizing that we are a people who fall so far short of your glory. And we pray that we would be people who lament our sins, who deplore or hate all the ways that we've revolted against you. And so, Father, we pray that we would be a people who weep, but we pray that we would be a people who believe, who believe that, that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did, and he's going to come back again just as he promised. And so we pray that you would use the words that I'm about to preach from John 17 to nourish our faith that we might head into yet another week ready, able, willing, eager to persevere for the sake of your glorious name. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please turn, if you would, to John chapter 17. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 903. We are in the end of uh, our study in the Gospel of John. We're not at the end of John, but every, every few months we come back to John and take a chapter or two at a time. And so we've been in chapters 16 and 17, and this morning we end chapter 17. Now, in chapters 14 through 17, what we've been seeing is Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. Jesus is about to leave. He's not going to be walking with them. He's not going to be talking to them the same way that he's been talking to them. Uh, he is going to the cross, and his ministry is going to radically change. And that's what we saw in chapter 15 and 16, is Jesus is promising the coming Holy Spirit, telling them that the Spirit's going to remind them of everything he taught them. They don't know exactly what's going on, right? They're believing, but they're not knowing exactly what's about to happen. Uh, it's boggling their minds, but Jesus is concerned for them because he knows that when he leaves, opposition is going to come. Now, they have faced opposition even while Jesus is there, but at least when he was there, they were able to go to him and ask him questions and get immediate answers. Jesus knows that when he leaves and goes to the cross, the opposition is now going to be taken, if you will, away from directly on Jesus, and now it's going to directly be on the apostles. And so Jesus is concerned for them, He's concerned about the persecution that's going to come. I'd say he's also concerned about the doubts that, that are going to well up in their own hearts, right? Jesus knew that Peter was about to deny him. Jesus knew that those Christians that the author of Hebrews was writing to would struggle to remain steadfast to Jesus in the face of persecution that the church faced in the early church. Jesus is a realist, and so he wants to offer hope. And so, for example, in, in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. You know, yes, I'm leaving, I'm going, but don't worry. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. All right, so Jesus is comforting them. He's training us in these chapters to think very big thoughts of God. I'd say sometimes when you go to the Gospel of John, um, it's a little bit confusing, the, the way John writes, the way Jesus speaks. What's going on, we think to ourselves. Jesus is training us to think big thoughts of him, 
to revel in who He is and to revel in who we are to be as we abide in Him. So regardless of the persecution, the tempest coming our way, Jesus says, look, God is your refuge. Our calling is to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God sent from the Father to save sinners like us. Now, meanwhile, Jesus doesn't want anyone to fall away the way Judas fell away. And so he says in John chapter 16, verse 1, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. So Jesus is preaching. John 14 through 16, he's preaching, look, don't fall away. You know, rest in me. Abide in me. You know, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. These are very, it's a very practical message for disciples who are about to face persecution and be discouraged. So his words, according to John 16, 1, his words are a lifeline held out by Jesus to keep us from apostasy. But in John chapter 17, Jesus doesn't just preach to us. He prays for us. And what a great model Jesus is here for every elder in John chapter 17. You know, I was thinking as I'm saying goodbye to John 17, at least from the pulpit, that I want to be a pastor like this. You know, I don't want to be the guy who's just constantly preaching to you, but I want to be the guy who's constantly praying for you. And I, and I do pray for you. But as I, as I noted that Jesus ended his direct ministry with the disciples by praying for them, I couldn't help but, but, but pray, God, make me a better prayer. You know, you should please pray for me and pray for all of our elders that we wouldn't just preach to you, but that we would pray for you, that the Holy Spirit would grab a hold of your heart and grant you the assurance of your salvation that only the Lord can give. Our verses are John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Let me prepare us by beginning to read to you from John chapter 16, verse 32, all right? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. 
and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And now to our passage for today. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our passage teaches us that unity is essential to the Christian mission. Unity is essential to the Christian mission. We are each called to persevere and to evangelize and to disciple, but behind all of these godly actions must be a God-given unity. And it's that unity I want us to think about today, right? Seven truths about Christian unity. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, so the sermon has expanded to seven points. When I'm here regularly, it's two or three, but when I leave, it goes to seven or more. All right? Seven truths about Christian unity. First, unity is important. Unity is important. It is not, it's not just important that we gather as a church. It's important how we gather. Right? Jesus made this clear a few chapters back in John 13, 35, when he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how we live together matters. Again, in John chapter 15, verse 17, he said, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Right? That's how Jesus preached. But notice how he prayed in John 17, verse 21. 
He prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. And verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus preached for our unity, right, by preaching about the necessity of love, and Jesus prayed for our unity as well. One theologian described Christian unity this way, it's to be one in purpose, one in purpose, in love, in action undertaken with and for one another, in joint submission to the revelation received, to be one in purpose, in love, in action, undertaken with and for one another, in joint submission to the revelation received. So in the church, we are all unique. I mean, line us all up. We are different sizes, different shapes, different colors, different accents. We're all very unique. We've got different inclinations, different personalities, different gifts. All of that is true, but According to Jesus, we are to be one, one in purpose, submitting ourselves together to the revelation that we have received from God. So hundreds of different people coming together with one purpose. Think about marriage. It consists of two people. Physically, they couldn't be more different, but when united, they complement the other biologically, emotionally, spiritually. And when united, a man and a woman can do together what they could never do apart. They can produce a child. And as that child grows, well, the mom and the dad model how to live. As the wife honors her husband, as the husband lays down his life for his wife, the kids come to better understand something of the character of God. The mystery of marriage is the union of two people. And in that union, whether they know it or not, they're putting the gospel on display in their life for the world, right? That's marriage. Now think about the church. Men and women from every tribe and tongue, from every continent and every culture coming together, gathering together to exalt the name of their creator, right? Millions of Christians, one creator, one redeemer, one savior. So regardless of skin color or zip code or accent, we are the body of Christ, called by Jesus to be one body. So if unity matters to Jesus, if unity was so important that Jesus would basically end his final prayer with the disciples by praying for their unity, then that unity, that unity of purpose, should matter to us as well. Unity is important, right? Number one. Number two, unity is divine. Unity is divine, right? Any unity in the church is a reflection of the unity that exists within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus prays in verse 21 that we would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
Lord, Jesus says, Father, I want them to be one, just as you're in me and I am in you. So one of the main themes running through the Gospel of John is the unity of the Father and the Son. And so you see it all over the place. I'm not going to go to any particular passage. But again and again, Jesus says to the disciples, the works I'm doing are the works of the Father, and the Father's works are my works. And Jesus says many times, the words I give you are the words of the Father, and the Father's words are my words. And Jesus even summarizes it really well in John chapter 10, verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. So one of the stunning things about Jesus that you discover if you come to the Gospel of John with fresh eyes is that he really does claim unity with God the Father, which led many of his enemies to conclude Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. Now, the kind of unity that we have with God is not one of equality, but as we come to share in God through Christ, we are gifted with the same unity that the Son has with the Father. To be a Christian is to be united to the Father and Son and to share in their unity. And as we share in the unity of the Godhead, we are united to one another. Now, I don't know exactly what unity in the Godhead looks like. I know that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have always existed, neither were created, and they never argued, right? They never bickered. There was never any controversy. They always agreed. And like no one is saying like Jesus is just a yes man, you know, the Holy Spirit just can't say no. No, they are in perfect unity, sharing a vision, sharing a purpose, desiring to create humanity. It's amazing when you go to Colossians 1, and you read in Colossians 1, and you're thinking, wow, it sure looks here like Jesus is being described as the creator. You know, I thought the Father was the creator, but it looks like Jesus is described as the one by whom all things were created. Absolutely. Jesus is one with the Father. Everything that the Father did, Jesus did. Everything the Father does, Jesus does. They are one in unity and one in purpose. And so Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, I want them to be one as well. Look at verse 22. The glory, Jesus prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. So when we become a Christian, Christ fills us with his presence and with his glory. And now, therefore, the most important thing about us is that we are fully identified with Christ. But if you have the glory of God in you, the glory that the Father shared with the Son, what else does that mean but that you are now, as a Christian, fully identified with Christ? Christ is your identity. Christ is one with the Father, and he makes us one with him. And then, being one with him, we are one with each other. Right, that's a lot of theology, and it's what Jesus is praying. He's praying theology. He's praying truth back to God the Father. And here's where the rubber meets the road. 
If you want to fully reflect the glory of God, you must live in community with other Christians. If you want to fully display the character of God, you must pursue unity in the body of Christ, the local church. So this is why church membership is so important. It is the hands and feet of a unity rooted in God himself. So if, if God is one with himself and Jesus says we are to be one with him and being one with him, we're to be one with one another, we are to look for very practical, tangible ways to express the unity that we share theologically. And the biblical expression of that kind of unity is membership in a local church where we say, yes, that brother belongs to me, that sister belongs to me, and I belong to that brother, and I belong to that sister, and we are one body. Right? That's all that membership is. Right? Membership is not an idea invented some, by some pastors who wanted to find a way to make pe people feel guilty for not coming to church. Right? We didn't like invent it. It's the idea of God who declared that our unity would be on display in the world as we reflect the unity that he has perfectly. So let me illustrate. I had the great opportunity to go to the coast. So if you're from the the West Coast, the beach is not the beach, right? The beach is the coast because out there, the Pacific Ocean is really cold, at least in Oregon. So we go to the coast. We go to the coast to cool down. And Adina's folks live uh, on the coast. And so when it was in the 90s and 100s uh, in Portland, we headed to Newport to visit with her parents where it was cool. And the coast is gorgeous. Now, I think all beaches are gorgeous. All right, and the, co the, the coast of Newport is no exception. And so go, uh, to go all the way across the country and get to that, that beach is a, it's a beautiful thing, just to see God's amazing creation. And uh, like in Florida and Georgia and uh, all along the, uh, the East Coast, we have sand in, in Oregon. And if you're to go to the Oregon coast and pick up one grain of sand, it's really, it's really not all that impressive, right? Now, I know if you are a scientist, you're impressed by one grain of sand. You're going to put it under a microscope and go, wow. All right, I get that. But for me, one grain of sand, not so impressive. But when that grain of sand is multiplied by, I don't know, billions and billions, you've got a beautiful coastline. And you just go, wow, this is beautiful. You can walk on it. And you can enjoy it. And you can see the waves, you know, you know, crashing on, the, on that, all that sand together. It's a beautiful thing. And then if you go a few miles north of Newport to the city of Lincoln City, where every year they have a sand castle competition, you see something else remarkable. You see people taking all those little bits of sand and clustering them together and sculpting them into amazing works of art. And you realize that one grain of sand may not be anything, all the grains of sand together are a beautiful coast, and every once in a while, a few grains of sand get put together, and an artist comes, and he fashions them into a castle or a mermaid or a picture of someone, and you stand in awe at the beauty of all of these little grains of sand reflecting the image of their creator. And isn't that what the local church is, right? We're not all the church. We're not the universal church. We're just a few hundred souls gathered together in Atlanta, Georgia. But we have been gathered together by God himself 
who has put us together in one local church that we might be sculpted together into the beautiful image of the glory of God that together in community we can spectacularly reflect his glory. And that's what Jesus is saying. We are to be one as he is one. And this unity is divine. So if you are not someone who has locked arms with brothers and sisters in Christ, on the basis of John 17, recognizing Jesus' prayer that we would be united as a reflection of the glory of God the Father and the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I implore you to join the body of Christ. Unity is divine. Right, number three, unity is inseparable from sound doctrine. Unity is inseparable, cannot be separated, is tied to sound doctrine. Look again at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Now, Jesus is telling us that he's not just praying for the 11 disciples gathered around him. Jesus there in verse 20 is praying for everyone who would ever believe in him through the word of the apostles, and he's praying for their unity. But who is it that is going to be united? Only those who believe in Christ through the word of God, through the, the word the apostles preached, the gospel, the word of God. And what does it mean to believe in Christ? Well, look at verse 25. He prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. So every Christian, right, every true disciple of Jesus knows that God the Father sent God the Son into the world to save sinners. Again, another theme in John. One of the chief themes of John is that the Father and the Son are one. They're, they're united. Right? Another theme is that the Father sent the Son into the world to save sinners. So whenever you read in John about the Father sending the Son, you should be thinking plan of salvation, plan of salvation. The Father sending the Son into the world to save sinners like you and me. And so Jesus is, is praying, recognizing the world doesn't know, doesn't know the Lord, but but the disciples do. They know, they know that the Father sent the Son. Every Christian knows the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world to save sinners like you and me. Now, verse 25 is basically a statement of faith. Right? When I say, I believe the Father sent the Son, that is a very brief statement of faith. I'm articulating my conviction that Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father into the world to live a perfect life, die a cruel death on the cross, and eventually be raised from the dead for my salvation and for the salvation of all who would ever repent and believe the good news. This is a statement of faith. It's, it's doctrine, right? It's what we believe and, and what we teach. And by praying the way he prays, by praying for those who would believe in him 
through the Word of God the apostles would teach, Jesus is connecting unity and sound doctrine. He's saying you can't have unity without the sound doctrine upon which the unity depends. Now, it is easy to get this wrong. So let me remind you of a website that I visited a number of uh, months ago, a website in another state, and it, it just stands in my mind as an example of what I want to avoid. Uh, I went to a church website, and uh, the, I know I'm dating myself, but all I can say is it reminded me of an episode of Friends, right? I don't condone watching Friends, but I did, and that's what it reminded me of. Uh, happy, good-looking people drinking coffee, and the not-so-subtle message of the website is if you come to our church, you'll have friends. Now, don't mishear me. I, 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 I want friends. I want you to have friends. Um, I'm happy if you're happy and, and good-looking and drinking coffee. You know, totally fine by me. But what I didn't see on the website was this sense that their friendship is rooted in the gospel. If the reason they gather together and have smile on their faces is because a sinless Savior died. And that's nothing we can ever assume. It's always got to be stated clearly because that is the sound doctrine upon which any unity, which I would say is often reflected in friendship and community, it's got to be based, any unity has to be based on sound doctrine. Okay. So let me say it again. We want community. I want community. And I am so thankful for the community that God has given me here. Um, we try to go back home um, every, every year. It's been a couple years since we as a family went to where our, my parents are and Dina's parents are and cousins are. And, um, and, and going back is great, and sometimes it's a little bit hard. Raise your hand if you're far from what you would consider home. Just raise your hand if Atlanta just isn't, isn't home. Not a lot of you, but, but some of you. Um, some too embarrassed to raise your hand. Um, so it's, 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 it's bittersweet because it's there that you've got family members who don't know the Lord, and you want to be near them to, you know, regularly share the gospel with them. You know, it's there because there's brothers and sisters that, that you relate to. You, you share a history. There's cousins that your, your kids can play with. And so, you know, Dean and I come back, and, you know, after spending a couple weeks back there, you know, there, there's a longing, right? And, and if you raise your hand, you know, you know what, I'm, what I'm talking about. And yet, how kind of God to bring us back from that trip and for Thursday afternoon for us to go downtown to the adoption court and to be in a room surrounded by members of Mount Vernon who gathered with us to celebrate the adoption of our daughter. And how kind of God. You know, as we were kind of longing a little bit for that, that, uh, that, that, that biological family to bring us back to Atlanta and on Thursday night just gather with so many of you in that over-the-top wonderful party for Tori and just recognize that when you are with a family of faith rooted in the gospel, you're not alone. You have community. You have family. I want that. If you're here at Mount Vernon and you don't have that, if you're here and you're feeling alone, I don't want you to feel alone. 
I want you to enjoy the community that the Menikoffs have come to enjoy as members of this church, but let me be clear. Christ is so much more important than community. Putting community before Christ is like putting the cart before the horse. Before we can truly have Christian unity, we must have sound doctrine. We must believe that the Father sent the Son. We must believe that the Son died on the cross in our place and rose from the, the dead for our justification. We must have faith in a crucified and risen Savior. And so at Mount Vernon, we are unapologetic about the need for sound doctrine. Our unity is rooted in sound doctrine. And I would even say if there's not sound doctrine there, the unity is a sham. Right? It's a facade. It doesn't even truly exist. And it is going to melt away with the slightest bit of persecution which we are about to face. Now, what does this look like practically? Well, before you join Mount Vernon, uh, we ask you to affirm a statement of faith. If, if you wanted to join Mount Vernon, we would ask you to affirm what we, the members of Mount Vernon, consider to be an accurate summary of basic Christian teaching. Now, we don't take a stand on everything. There is room for disagreement on, on many things. But we do take a stand on those things that we believe to be necessary for authentic Christianity and abiding peace in the body of Christ. So that's one way we seek to be united by holding sound doctrine tightly. Something we don't currently do, but something that I would recommend that we do in the future is as an entire congregation on a Sunday morning during a service to repeat aloud together historic Christian creeds like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed, a very basic statement of faith about the identity of Jesus in the first century. The Nicene Creed, a very simple statement of faith written in the fourth century describing the nature of Jesus and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. These creeds have been expressed by believers throughout the centuries. And as we gather together and if we're able to repeat together, confess our faith through those creeds aloud, what we're saying to the world is, hey, we're not primarily Baptist. We believe what Christians have believed through the centuries. We don't just lock arms with one another. We lock arms with believers throughout time, throughout the history of the church, who have believed the same things about Jesus that we believe. Sound doctrine is crucial for us to profess. That was point number three, unity is inseparable from sound doctrine. All right, number four. Unity is visible. Now, we saw this in John 13, 35, when Jesus said that the world will know that we are Christ's disciples by the love we have for one another. He repeats the idea in John 17, 21, when he says that they may all be one. Notice why he prays that they may all be one. So that the world may believe that you sent me. And in verse 22, he prays that they may be one even as we are one. And again, notice why, verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Jesus expects our unity to be visible. Jesus prays the world would see our unity. A world full of people who don't know Jesus should see the unity of the body of Christ. So how do we make our unity visible? 
Very practically, how do we do that? How do we make our unity, you know, based on sound doctrine, how do we make that unity visible? Well, we do it in a number of ways. We do it by gathering together, right? Our gatherings are a public testimony of the gospel. We have a brother here, I think, somewhere. We have a brother here who was born again in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And there where he went to church, the church had to be underground. And members of that church, if found out by the state, would be whipped and imprisoned, right? Not so much in Atlanta, right? Our gatherings are public, right? We have been gifted with freedom of religion. We gather together publicly. And so our gatherings are one way that we make our unity visible. Now, I know that a lot of your non-Christian friends do not want to darken the door of a church. But, you know, some of them, some of them would come if asked. You know, some of them are curious, like, what is it you guys talk about? And you might invite a friend to come and see, maybe when we have a baptism. Invite a non-Christian friend to come and witness a baptism and just say, look, I'd love your feedback. Our gatherings are one way we display the unity that Jesus prayed for. Also, by going. We display our unity by gathering. We display our unity by going. So when you go, for example, on a short-term missions trip, one of the things that you're probably doing is looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. And right, you should. But another thing we do when we go on a short-term missions trip, especially when we go visit a partner, a church partner overseas, is what we're saying is the kingdom of God is growing in other parts of the world in Atlanta. And we want to see what you're doing, and we want to be a part of what you're doing. And that's another way of displaying the unity of the gospel. So if you have not gone on a trip and would like to, talk to Brian Pillsbury or Ricky Hutchins after the service. We make our unity visible by gathering, by going, by standing. One of the ways we make our unity visible is by standing on sound doctrine, where we publicly state what we believe to be true even when the world is not pleased with our position. So one of the unusual gifts that God has recently given us in this Supreme Court decision is the ability to more publicly make our position on marriage clear. And the thing that I'm praying happens in my own life is that whenever I engage in these conversations, I want to pivot to help people understand the reason I believe this about marriage is because I love Jesus. And I want you to know that what I think that what Jesus says goes. And what's true for me is true for the entire church that I'm privileged to pastor and be a part of. So our unity is visible, sometimes uncomfortably visible, when we stand for sound doctrine, even when the world opposes it. We make our visible unity, our, our unity visible by gathering, by going, by standing, and by mingling. At one time, you might have an application in this sermon that says you should mingle. But it's true. You should mingle with your non-Christian friends. You should get to know them and invite them into your life. And as you invite them into your life, you are inevitably, if you really love them, going to let them into what's going on in your life and maybe even introduce them to your Christian brothers and sisters that they might witness the unity we have in the family of God. We make our unity visible by gathering and going, by standing for sound doctrine, by mingling with unbelievers, and by speaking, by speaking. Be open about your involvement in a local church. 
Let people know that there are brothers and sisters who are a vital part of your life. Tell them that your church matters and let them wonder why it matters so much and pray that one day they'd ask you, hey, what's going on with you and that church? Pray that they would ask about it. Our unity is to be visible. That was point number four. Unity is visible. Point number five, related, unity is compelling. Unity is compelling. We are called to believe that God will use the unity of this church to lead people to Christ. Jesus prays for our unity so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son to save us. And if this is Jesus' prayer, let's be confident that God will use the unity of the church to bring many to know him. So let me ask you, is the unity of Mount Vernon a compelling witness of the gospel? Do other people see our love for one another? Do they see that Christ has changed the way we relate to one another? Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This passage may be the clearest picture of Christian unity in the Bible. Ephesians 4, here's what Paul writes. I think Paul is reflecting on the unity that Jesus prayed for. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul gives us a blueprint of our life together. He sketches out for us a united church. We are to walk together in humility and in gentleness and with patience. We're to bear with each other in love. We're to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that we received when we gave our lives to Christ. So think about your own life. Right, look at those verses and think about your own life. Do you help or hinder the unity at Mount Vernon? What could it look like for you to be the kind of person who maintains the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Are you the type of person who leans into others and not away from others? You're not, you're not pursuing unity by pulling away from other people. Are you the type of person who encourages other people, repeatedly letting them know how you see evidence of God's grace in their lives? Are you the type of person who disagrees well with other people? I want to make this point really clear because sometimes when churches talk about unity, people are left with the impression, well, does that mean I can't disagree on everything? Does that mean I have to, you know, agree with everything that the pastor says or everything that the elders say or whatever the deacons are doing? The answer is no. You don't. But to be a Christian is to disagree well, right? Maybe you have a better idea, and maybe you could do it better. That may be very positively true. But even if that's the case, disagree with love and in humility. Don't disagree in a way that, that hurts feelings or breeds discouragement. 
So a church full of people leaning into one another, encouraging each other, disagreeing well with each other, is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's not seen very often in the world, and this is the visible picture that is compelling. And so I pray that this is the kind of church that we would be like. That's the fifth point. Number six, unity is imperfect. Unity is imperfect. I couldn't help but wonder as a, well, Brad already mentioned it, but I was thinking the same thing, Brad, as people, were people laughing when they were walking, driving down the street seeing that sign? Did you see the sign? You know, what is it, our, our Christian, what is Christian unity? As they drove past the Primitive Baptist Church, which is right next to Holy Innocence, which is right across the street from Mount Vernon Baptist, and then we've got the sign, what is Christian unity? And they're probably saying, well, I don't know what it is, but it's not here. You know, I was a little self-conscious of that. Um, you know, and it's not just Atlanta. You know, it, it, almost every American city is full of churches. We are literally on each other's doorstep. So let's just admit it. Clearly, unity is imperfect. I have brothers and sisters in Christ at, at churches that are very like-minded who would not allow me to be a, an elder in their church because of my view of baptism. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ who would not let others, other brothers and sisters in Christ, be members of our church because of their view of baptism, right? We differ with Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists and, and so on. We differ over points of doctrine that make it practically hard for us to do church together, to live with a sense of abiding peace. We, we differ over those points of doctrine so clearly our unity is imperfect. And yet, let me make this very clear, where there is a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, that holds firmly to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where there is a church that calls for repentance and faith, that people might be saved and await the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whether that church is Presbyterian or Anglican or Pentecostal, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united with them, and it is about us that Jesus is praying. We have unity with other churches. And yet, regardless of what they call themselves, where there are congregations that do not preach Christ, who claim the name of Christ but deny his substitutionary death and miraculous resurrection, where there are congregations that teach you can earn God's favor by what you do, I would say they are not part of the true church. And we should pray for their salvation and grieve over the confusion that their preaching causes among the unredeemed and the immature. And now let's look within. Unity is imperfect. And it's not just imperfect because there's a lot of churches on the streets. And they're not just imperfect because we have certain differences with other denominations that make it virtually impossible for us to gather together and unite together the way we one day will. But we fall short at home. We fail to maintain unity the way we should. And so I take heart when I read John 17, 23, where Jesus prays that we would become perfectly one. Jesus knows, praying for all believers, that we are not there yet. In a fallen world, we fail. We struggle with divisive sins like pride 
and arrogance and insecurity and laziness, these kinds of sins that have a way of pulling the rug out from under the unity that we are called by Jesus to display, and I would say even further, that left on our own. Without God's help, we would eat one another alive. We would be like hunger games without the Spirit of God at work in our midst. Our unity is imperfect, and we need to be really honest about that. I'm not taking anything away from the wonderful unity that we experience as a local church and the unity that we have with other brothers and sisters and of like-minded faith in other churches, but let's be honest, our unity is imperfect. And that leads us to our final point. Number seven, unity is a gift. Unity is a gift. Now, we know this. How? We know this because Jesus asked the Father to give it, right? The kind of unity we're to have, the kind of unity that commends the gospel to the world is something that we can't produce by ourselves, which makes perfect sense to me. How is something that I produce going to be of any value to the world? No, what they need to see is something miraculous. They need to see something stupendously miraculous that only God can do. And Jesus prays for unity because the unity we need is a unity that only God can give. The unity that is visible, the unity that is compelling to the world is unity that comes from God. And so Jesus prays, Father, make them one. It's a gift. Websites don't produce unity. Potlucks don't produce unity. They come close, but they don't do it. Right? We need the Holy Spirit to knit our hearts together in such a way that our love for each other is a model of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we know that unity is a gift because Jesus prayed for it. I prayed for unity this morning. I think every, I think every day I pray for unity in the body of Christ. And not because I don't want to get in arguments with people. You know, I'm pretty good at disagreeing. I'm sinfully good at disagreeing. All right? Pray for me. I pray for unity because I want us to be a compelling witness of the gospel in Sandy Springs and Atlanta and in the world. And I know that only God can do it. So as nice as we are to one another, it's not going to bring the unity. Unity comes from the Lord. That's why Jesus prayed for it. But I can't end there, and I am going to end soon. But I can't end right here because I have to, we have to take Jesus' prayer in the context of John. And when you flip the page, you see where Jesus is going. Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus didn't die merely to save a person, Jesus died to save a people. A people who not only hated Jesus, but who hated one another. And so when you read Jesus' prayer in the context of all of John, and you think about church unity, what you need to walk away with is the reality that Jesus not only prayed for unity, but he purchased unity as well. We live in a world riddled with racism and with hatred. If I prayed every Sunday morning for an attack, a murder that took place in our country, in our world, our services would only contain prayers for redemption in a wicked world that we inhabit. 
the unity that we long for will not be found on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. It will only be found on Calvary, where Christ, as Paul put it in Ephesians 2.14, Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Through his death, Jesus purchased everlasting life so that sinners who hated him and hated one another could have that sin taken away, that wall of division between us pushed down so that we could be brought together living in Christ and living for and with one another. It's Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that purchased our unity. I think one of the best films of 2014 is a film about the lost boys of Sudan called The Good Lie. That film is largely about three of these refugees who grow to adulthood in a refugee camp in Kenya and then end up being able to come to America where they live together in Kansas City, getting jobs and acclimating to their new home and their new country. And as you watch the movie, although their unity is imperfect, one of the things that you notice is that these, that these friends care deeply about one another. They are perhaps unusually united to one another. As you watch the movie, it becomes really clear. They live together. They share life together. And, and is part of the reason because they have a shared experience in the Sudan? It absolutely is. Is part of it because they have witnessed together horrible things? Absolutely it is. But when you watch that movie, one of the things that you walk away with is the reality that their unity was purchased for them by their older brother. When they were on the way from the camp, the, the village that was gunned down by enemy militia, and they're on their way to the refugee camp in Kenya, one day, one morning, they're lying down asleep in the weeds of an African plain. And one of the younger brothers wakes up to the sound of feet walking in the distance. And he, he pops his head up out of the weeds, and what he sees is a, is a soldier with a gun. And the soldier can barely see him, but the soldier sees him. And when the young brother sees that the soldier sees him, he quickly falls to the ground, and the soldier begins to yell out, asking him to come. Well, the older brother is lying in the weeds as well, and the older brother has to act quickly. And so the older brother immediately gets up, he pops out of the weeds, and he says, here I am, don't shoot. And the soldier says, look, is there anybody else? And the older brother, he lies. He says, no, it's just me. And so with his hands behind his back, the older brother walks out of the weeds to the soldier and is taken away. And for the rest of their lives, those three boys recognize that they are together because of the sacrifice of their older brother. Their unity was purchased, and it changed how they lived. Is their unity perfect? No, it's not. But their unity is purchased. And what we need to leave together, the way we need to leave together today, is not by singing kumbaya and holding one another's hands, although you can hold one another's hands and greet one another with a holy kiss. Go for it. But the way we're to leave together today is not simply with a call for greater unity, but with the reminder that our unity was purchased by an older brother who did what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died on a cross, 
bearing the penalty of our transgressions upon himself. Transgressions which included pride and arrogance and lovelessness and anxiety and depression, all sins that pull us away from one another. He took those sins upon himself so that we could live together. To Christ be the glory. Let's pray.